You're going to love this. Just love it. Clowns and Jokers, this is your broadcast from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. 91.7 FM here in the City of Angels. 91.7 FM KYAQ along the Oregon Central Coast. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the iTunes on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, other fine affiliates in Parts Unknown, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, your friendly citizen, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Glad you could join us for another thrilling, jam-packed action adventure here on the Bradcast. Uh, okay, we will be talking, well, we'll be talking with Miles Grant in a little bit of the National Wildlife Foundation's... Um, Federation. Federation. Thank you. I'm not 30 seconds into this show, and Desi Doyen is al- already <laughs> correcting me. Well done. Uh, hi, Des. Somebody has to. Somebody's got to. You're right. Actually, and you can correct me as well. If you'd like, drop me a note anytime at bradcast at bradblog.com for you youngsters who enjoy the emails. Also, if you'd like to, uh, for, for you even young younger youngsters, would like to uh, hit me on the Twitter, I am the bradblog there, and also on Facebook. I am the Brad Blog. Of course, if you'd like to complain to Desi Doyen, please do. She's Green News Report on yes, Twitter. Yes, please do. Yes, please do. Uh, oh, and we might talk. You you had a complaint. Oh yeah, uh, I had a Twitter uh, troll. A, a Twitter troll uh, about fossil fuel. Maybe we'll get to that a little bit later. Oh, in the I hope show. so. I it was very do. entertaining. I know. I know. It always is. Um. Anyway, as I started to say, the National Wildlife. Federation's Miles Grant will be joining us uh, in a bit uh, to chat about. Well, I'll give you a a, a teaser here. This is uh, just this week from the from streetsblog.org. They write the 23 lane Katy Freeway in Houston, Texas. Uh, is a monument to Texas transportation futility. Yes, I know. Talking about uh, infrastructure doesn't always sound uh, sound that sexy. Except when you get to make fun of Texas with it. Well, see, I know. <laughs> see, thank you for pointing that out. And I'm from and Texas. And you're from Texas. So I can do so that. So you can say I have uh, I have impunity. You do. Well, sort of. Um, Fast-growing Texas cities have an enormous traffic problem, writes Angie Schmidt over at streetsblog.org. That isn't in much dispute. 
But the response has been myopic, pouring more and more money into widening highways. Even the road engineers at the Texas Transportation Institute recently acknowledged there's no way these cities can fund and build highway lanes fast enough to keep pace with population growth. Now, I should also add that in Houston, those huge uh, highways are also water drainage, as we saw this week, as we saw hundreds of cars stranded. In fact, some folks drowned in their car this week in Texas with this uh, horrible uh, uh, rainfall that I would say is related to global warming. I would say that only because the mainstream media seems uh, so terrified of mentioning that. In any event... Uh, going back to Streets Blog for the moment, uh, they write that uh, that is in no small part uh, that they can't build uh, these highway lanes fast enough in no small part because widening and expanding highways fuels sprawl that induces more car trips. Which was even acknowledged by the Texas Transportation Institute. Jay Crossley at Houston Tomorrow crunched the numbers after the infamous Katy Freeway widening. This was a project that uh, Congressman John Culberson recently bragged about in Congress. It's a $2.8 billion expansion. He said it went uh, from, he was proud of this, it went from eight lanes to 23 lanes and resulted in moving more cars in less time, more savings to taxpayers than any other transportation project in the history of Houston. Turns out that's not actually true. What? Yes, I know. Houston, commu- uh, uh, Houston commutes continue to get worse despite billions in spending on new road capacity. Traveling from downtown outbound on the I-10 Katy Freeway to Pin Oak took 51% more time in 2014 than it did in 2011, according to an analysis of Houston Transtar data. Wait, so they spent $2 billion to make traffic 51% worse? Correct. Wow. No, $2.8 billion. I'm sorry, $2.8 billion. Almost $3 billion to make things worse. The Houston region in recent years has been spending the most per capita on new roads of the 10 largest uh, metropolitan regions in the nation. So, yeah, in in 2011, uh, the trip from during rush hour from downtown past Beltway 8 all the way to Pin Oak, just past the Katie Mills Mall in 2011, that trip took 46 minutes and 53 seconds. It now takes 70 minutes and 27 seconds, according to uh, data put together by Houston Transtar and reported by streetsblog.org. The reason I mention that is because Miles Grant of the National Wildlife Federation, Federation. Yes. Uh, will be joining us. He wrote an article at bradblog.com this week about pretty much exactly that called Roads to Nowhere. Do voters really want more? A lot of politicians, they love these big uh, road projects. They think, uh, oh, look, I'm bringing all this pork back to uh, back to town. But uh, maybe the voters really don't want more roads. We'll talk to Miles Grant about that in a bit. Looking forward to that conversation. In the meantime, I've been looking forward to this. I've been trying to get to this story for the past, I don't know, two weeks or so. This TPP business, this Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, trade pack uh, nonsense is driving, well, not just driving me nuts, driving a lot of people nuts, I think. It's also driving a wedge between a lot of Democrats. The the fast track for this project, meaning 
the allowance uh, for the president to essentially negotiate any deal they want and then bring it to Congress, and it has to sort of pass on an up or down vote, period. Uh, you can't uh, amend it. You can't change it. So first, instead of arguing in favor of what TPP actually does, first they're arguing that uh, let's just, you know, give me the OK to, to, to pass it through without, you know, with an up or down vote, no changes, no uh, looking at it, no amendments and so forth. And it's not just for TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's for all such trade deals for the next 10 years, no matter who, no matter who the president happens to be. Keep that in mind, Democrats, when you're fighting over this. We had, uh, well, let's see, uh, Barack Obama uh, calls this trade deal, and you just got to trust him, apparently, because you're not allowed to see it. He calls this trade deal the most progressive trade deal. He says it's not NAFTA. It's the most progressive trade deal ever. It's the highest standard, most progressive trade deal in history. It's got strong, enforceable provisions for workers, preventing things like child labor. It's got strong, enforceable provisions on the environment, helping us to do things that haven't been done before to, to prevent uh, wildlife trafficking or deforestation or dealing with our oceans. And these are enforceable in the agreement. Says President Obama, maybe, maybe so, maybe so, maybe not. We don't know. We can't see the deal except what leaks out, uh, you know, is posted on WikiLeaks and so forth. Now, we had um, we had Alan Grayson on the broadcast a few weeks back. He talked about this uh, this bill. And I asked him specifically, why does the president say that this is the most progressive trade deal ever? Here's what Congressman Alan Grayson from Florida told me about it. We've been hoodwinked. I think that the president has brought into the Chamber of Commerce's uh, agenda in this regard. I know it's true. Uh, and thank God we have many Democrats who don't get sucked into that uh, vortex of fantasy uh, that, that somehow sending jobs overseas is a good thing for America. It doesn't create any jobs in this country. Far from it. It sucks jobs out of the country and sends them abroad. Well, that's what Alan Grayson says. And that's also what Ross Perot said about NAFTA so many years ago, back in 1992. Remember his, his, his infamous uh, sucking sound? Uh, we got to stop sending jobs overseas, he said. It's pretty simple. If you're paying 12, 13, 14, see, we, we're too lazy to go find the actual clip. So I'm just going to do <laughs> that's the uh, impression. Pretty good impression of him, think, though. Can, a little higher, oh, a little more I, pinched. Can I finish? Can you finish? Can, can you let me finish? <laughs> If you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for, for, for factory workers and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, have no health care, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. That was really good. Thanks. Actually. Thank you. <laughs> That was Ross Perot back in 1992, warning against NAFTA at the time Democrats were arguing in favor of it. And, of course, that uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, that did pass. Bill Clinton signed it after he and Al Gore argued uh, vociferously for it. 
So now uh, here we go again, except the president says, no, 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 this is uh, very progressive. This corrects a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the problems from NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. So uh, we should like it. Now, apparently he's been able to get while uh, folks like Elizabeth Warren and Alan Grayson and Senator Bernie Sanders and, and many other progressive Democrats are against that. They were able to get enough Democrats in favor of it to pass fast track approval in the U.S. Senate. And in case you're wondering who these Democrats are that voted with pretty much all of the Republicans to give this fast track authority to the president of the United States, not just this president, but the presidents far into the future. Uh, who those Democrats are? Well, let's see uh, in the Senate. Michael Bennett of Colorado, Maria Cantwell of Washington, Tom Carper of Delaware, Chris Coons of Delaware, Diane Feinstein of California, Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota, Tim Kaine of Virginia, Claire McCaskill, Missouri, Patty Murray, Washington, Bill Nelson, Florida, Jean Shaheen of, North, uh, of New Hampshire, Mark Warner of Virginia, and Ron Wyden of the otherwise progressive state of Oregon. So they voted to give that authority to the president. We will see now if it will pass in the, uh, in the U.S. House. And, you know, folks like uh, Dianne Feinstein, who voted in favor of Fast Track, uh, she says she agrees with the president that, in fact, uh, this is a progressive deal and, uh, you know, critics should should give it a good look. It's not just for corporate America, says Dianne Feinstein. Most people think this is a bill for corporate America. In California, 95 percent of the trade is carried out by companies and businesses of less than 500 people. So this is economically upward, mo uh, upwardly mobile jobs for people. And it, I think it is extraordinarily important uh, that the trade uh, authority be given to the president. I also think there's a macro reason, and that is America loses its leadership in this very stimulating and increasing theater of trade. Let me ask you. Well, that's a very compelling argument that Senator Dianne Feinstein is making for the uh, Trans-Pacific Trans Partnership trade agreement. I wish we could verify whether she was right. I wish we could verify whether the president of the United States is right. But we can't. We're not allowed to see the bill. Members of Congress, they are allowed to see the bill. But they're not allowed to see it with uh, with anybody. They're not allowed to go in there with with assistance. They're not allowed to take notes. Here's Bernie Sanders talking about the secrecy surrounding this bill a few days ago on uh, on the Chris uh, Chris Hayes show. Here's what the process is. Can I walk into the top secret room, which is probably more top secret than the NSA? Can I walk in there and read the document? I can. Can I write down information and take it out? No, I can't. Can I, in a highly technical and legal document of many hundreds of pages, bring in my staff lawyers to help me better understand the document? I cannot do that either. So I have not given credibility to this process. There is virtually no transparency. 
Uh, and that is one of the many reasons to vote against. I just want to reiterate this for folks, because I think this is one of the sticking issues, right? Because people talk about the agreement and the president says, well, they can see it if they want. There is a room that Bernie Sanders can go to as yes. a member of the United States Senate. Correct. In that room, there is a document that's printed out that's the sort of draft agreement thus far, right? Yes. Things Correct. that have been hammered out. Correct. It is a highly technical. It's like reading all of the Affordable Care Act, right? <laughs> I mean, Probably worse than Right. I mean, it's very, it's a highly technical document. Yeah. What you can do is you can go in and you can read it, right. commit it to memory, yes. and walk out. If I had a photographic memory, it would work just great. But, but you can't have staff, you can't take notes, you can't do any of that? Correct. <laughs> that really does seem absurd. Of course it's absurd. Yeah, do you think? Of course it's absurd. So, you know, to me, I know there's a lot of people, a lot of progressives out there, a lot of Democrats out there who are, uh, you know, furious about this bill, furious about TPP. And I understand why they would be. The problem is, who knows who's right? Because we can't see the bill. Now, uh, recently, Greg Sargent writes, I'm sorry, I said we can't see the bill. We can't see the actual trade agreement. So recently, Greg Sargent over at Washington Post writes that two dozen House Democrats attended a classified briefing with the U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman to seek reassurance on a core concern about the massive Trans-Pacific Partnership. What is the guarantee that countries like Vietnam will have to fully implement higher standards for the country's workers as a condition for gaining the benefits of participating in the trade deal? Well, Congressman Sander Levin of Michigan, he's the ranking Democrat on the House Ways and Means Committee. He's a very well respected on trade and labor issues. He told Greg Sargent that he came away from that briefing less confident that the deal will impose meaningful, enforceable labor standards on Vietnam, for example. He remains unpersuaded that Vietnam has agreed to the sort of changes as a condition for participating in TPP that Democrats are hoping for. He says, uh, Levin uh, told Greg Sargent, there's been no commitment and nothing has been agreed to in terms of changes in their laws and practices. At this point, Vietnam does not begin to conform with basic international standards on workers' rights. At this point, there are no commitments from Vietnam to take any steps. At this point, I have no confidence that it will be done before we vote, before we vote up or down to accept the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now, contrast that. That's uh, Sander Levin, who would like to pass a trade bill, actually, and who was given uh, access to the uh, a, a trade um, representative, to the U.S. trade representative, to discuss his specific concerns, and he came out more worried than he was when he went back, than he went in in the first place. Now, contrast that to what Barack Obama had said just days before that, just days before those Democrats went in and asked about Vietnam. Uh, here's what the president said publicly speaking at the, uh, was this, the Nike factory up there in Seattle, wherever it is. Uh, here's what Obama specifically said about Vietnam and the TPP. So when you look at a country like Vietnam, under this agreement, Vietnam would actually, for the first time, have to raise its labor standards. It would have to set a minimum wage. It would have to pass safe workplace laws to protect its workers. It would even have to protect workers' freedom to form unions for the very first time. That would make a difference. That helps to level the playing field, and it would be good for 
the workers in Vietnam, even as it helps make sure that they're not undercutting competition here in the United States. So that's progress. It doesn't mean that suddenly working conditions in Vietnam will be like they are here at Nike. Or, or here in Portland right away, but it, it moves us in the right direction. Well, apparently, it doesn't move us at all, according to uh, Democratic uh, Congressman Sandra Levin of Michigan, who met with the U.S. Trade Representative and asked him specifically about Vietnam. After the president said, oh, it's going to make things better for working conditions in Vietnam. Sandra Levin told Greg Sargent, the administration likes to say that they're going to remedy the problems of NAFTA through TPP. At this point, he added, there's no confidence that there will be a meaningful standard as to Vietnam or Mexico, which is also a part of this uh, this deal. He says, we must not give up our leverage until they get it right. I'm in favor of a TPP. It needs to be a TPP that gets it right. My confidence went down after the Vietnam briefing. So who do you believe? Who are we to believe? I mean, I'm just, you know, I I don't have any secret uh, insider knowledge about what's going on in this trade deal. The only people that do are the people who are negotiating it and the people like the uh, corporate lobbyists who are allowed in on the negotiation. We're not, but they are. I don't feel good about that. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm not even arguing for or against the TPP at this point. I'm trying to gather up what information we can, report it back to you as best that we can. But my big problem here right now is the secrecy and the fact that we're not allowed to look at it at all. And that should set off all kinds of alarms for every American about this bill, about this trade agreement, about TPP. Show us the agreement, Mr. President. In the meantime, corporations uh, paid those U.S. senators who voted in favor of that uh, fast-track bill an extraordinary amount of money. Out of uh, the total $1,148,000 given to uh, those senators uh, uh, who voted yay uh, from the companies, the corporations who are involved in the TPP, who will benefit directly from the TPP. Uh, an average of 17000 was donated to, donated to each of the 65 yay votes. The average Republican member received $19,673 from corporate TPP supporters. The average Democrat received just $9,000. And uh, $9,689 from those same donors. So the Republicans are getting a lot more. No matter, no wonder the Republicans are in favor of it. What the hell these uh, Democrats are thinking, I can't tell you. Nobody can tell you because nobody's allowed to see the goddamn uh, trade agreement. And that is what is insane. And I don't know how we, uh, we do legislation in this country when it's done in complete and utter secret. It seems to me that it is absolutely ridiculous. Show us the agreement, and then we can decide whether we're for it or again it. This ain't no way to run a government. Brad Friedman, this is your Bradcast. We'll be back with Miles Grant and much more. Stay tuned. This is Hank Johnson, congressman of Georgia's 4th District, and I'm listening to the Bradcast. Thank <laughs> you.
You got that right. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. On the road to nowhere. What? This week at the Brad Blog, environmental journalist Mile Grant uh, posted an article called Roads to Nowhere. Do voters really want more? He writes, from the Beltway to Bertha, it's taken for granted that American voters want to spend more, not just to repair but to improve roads and bridges, meaning expensive new and expanded highways. It's assumed that their only objection is that they don't want to have to pay higher gas taxes. There's only one problem, writes Miles Grant. Like the mythical American love affair with the car with cars, there's little evidence of an American craving for new highways. Really? Let's find out. Miles Grant is the communications director for the National Wildlife Federation. He is a progressive blogger and environmental communicator, writing about everything from global warming to smart growth to organic beer. You can read more of his work at thegreenmiles.com and follow him on the Twitters at Miles Grant. But, of course, his proudest achievement is guest blogging from time to time at bradblog.com. Miles Grant, welcome, sir, to the Bradcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, so... Uh, let's see, Miles. Uh, why do you hate labor unions and all the jobs that would be created if we raised taxes and built roads all over the country? Right. Of course. You know that is the thing that Democratic <laughs> politicians keep coming back. And, to, and, you and know, Democratic. And, and, and your Democrat- name. Is, your name is Miles. For Christ's sake. Right. I mean, how can it be? Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, Democratic politicians certainly often push things like gas taxes to fund more roads, you know, because they think their constituents want it. You know, certainly from a progressive point of view, raising the price of gasoline and giving an incentive to use less of it is a good thing. And Democratic politicians certainly see a a way to build their their coalition with labor unions that are going to be the ones actually putting down these roads. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you look at it, you see states like Massachusetts and Michigan have recently rejected a gas tax increase. You know, Governor Rick Snyder of Michigan, a Tea Party Republican, mm-hmm. you know, had pushed a referendum, and he said, "Well, voters didn't support this proposal. We know they want action taken to maintain and improve our roads and bridges, but when you actually look at the polling on this issue, you don't see evidence to support that." Well, uh, so you're saying they support improvement of roads and bridges, fixing. I mean, we've got a huge problem in this country, you know, when it comes not just to roads but especially to bridges. Uh, are, are you saying there is a, a nuance that voters do want improvement uh, fixes of roads and bridges? They just don't want new roads and bridges? 
Right. You certainly see a lot of polling that, that supports repairing roads and bridges. But I think when you hear politicians and when you hear commentators talk about it, you know, you, you, they talk about road and bridge repair like it's small ball, like, you know, it's not, you know, American expansionism. If we just repair that bridge, we have to build a new one that's wider with more lanes. But when you look at the studies of what that actually does, you know, voter, you, you think of that as a wider road must mean I can get to work faster, right? Mm-hmm. But there are tens of thousands of other people in your community that are thinking the exact same thing, and those wider roads and bridges are just going to fill up, and you just paid $100 million to expand the highway for it to be just as gridlocked as it was before. And and that sort of, that is a thing that is known uh, around city planners, traffic planners, that expansion of highways, ju- uh, that, that the traffic expands to fill the expanded highways. And we have a, an example that you cited uh, out here, I'm in Los Angeles, uh, and, and you cited a report from Vox, which talked about uh, decades of traffic data across the U.S. shows that adding new road capacity doesn't actually improve congestion. The latest example of this is the widening of L.A.'s I-405 freeway, as we call it, the 405 out here in L.A., which was completed last May after five years of construction, a cost of over $1 billion dollars. And now, according to Matthew Turner, a Brown University uh, economist, the data shows that traffic is moving slightly slower now on the 405 than before the widening. How, how can that be? Well, as soon as you announce a new highway, the developers are going to start building, buying up that land around that highway and putting in the subdivisions before the highway is even completed. So you're going to have cars basically idling on the edge of that highway, waiting to take it the minute it opens, you know, and it really we're looking at consumers here who have choices they can you know take the train they can take the bus they can drive and if you're building a wider highway and not charging people to use it in many cases you're giving people a subsidy to drive more and it's no wonder they use it well okay but as you said uh, there's uh, housing goes in businesses come in uh, it doesn't that equal uh, more, more jobs uh, improved economy all around or around the, these road expansions well, I think the, the question for me would, would be, how is that improving my life? You know, I've got a friend who lives outside of Philadelphia, and I used to drive on the road west of there all the time. And uh, I get to watch over a period of years, not only his children grow up, but strip malls grow up alongside the road. And suddenly a drive that had taken me half an hour was taking me an hour to go through stoplight after stoplight after stoplight. You know, is that really progress? And I think when you look at the polls on this, voters are perfectly willing to spend to repair the roads and bridges in their communities. But I think they are you know, I think we don't give them enough credit that they know that these billions of dollars aren't necessarily making their drives to work any shorter. If we want to improve the roads and the bridges, but not uh, build more of the above, uh, gas taxes have been used for years historically. Uh, you've, you've even got, I mean, in this case, you, you cited Rick Snyder, the Tea Party governor of Michigan. He was supporting this increased right. gas tax, right? So uh, you, you've got Tea Party Republicans like Rick Snyder who, for some reason, don't mind raising that tax. You've got uh, uh, folks, I, I suspect, at the National Wildlife Federation um, who would also like to raise that uh, uh, tax. But uh, if you're saying that uh, nobody seems to want their gas taxes raised other than environmentalists and somehow Tea Party Republicans, how do we how do we raise the money to pay for the for the roads and bridges that do need to be improved and fixed at this point? Well, I think 
the one thing that we need to do is take a step back and say, you know, are we looking to fund repairs of existing roads and bridges, which is a fairly small portion mm. of our road budget, or are we looking to continue building in these new and expanded roads and bridges, which is a, a massively outsized portion of our budget? To resurface a road is cheap. To expand a highway is incredibly expensive. I think what you see is voters are willing to pay that money to fund roads and bridges. And I, I think, you know, if we're just talking repair, we're talking about a much smaller increase year to year. But I think politicians feel like if they don't talk about expanding and building new ones, well, don't you hate capitalism? Or aren't exactly. you for growth? Yeah. It's the American dream, baby. Keep expanding. Right. I, 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 and so, but your argument seems to be that we have almost uh, enough. Uh, do we have enough money with the gas taxes as they are without increasing them if all we did was use it to repair roads and bridges as opposed to building new ones? Well, I think we would have a much less of a crisis on our hands where we could bump up the gas tax and have that cover the, the repairs down the road. When we talk about huge new sources of money, we're not talking about repair. We're talking about projects like the, the new 405 that mm-hmm. cost over a billion dollars and did not improve traffic. But, uh, you know, I think what these, these new and expanded roads and bridges are doing over the course of decades and decades and decades is fueling sprawl across the country. You know, it's fueling these hyper-commutes and long commutes that just increase our oil use, increase our energy use, and they also devastate wildlife habitat. You know, across the country, we're looking at a crisis of pollinators that bees, monarch butterflies, etc., are just cratering right now. And I think one of the problems is, you know, we've focused on saving endangered species from place to place, but we, you know, we've saved the tr- these trees, mm-hmm. but we're losing forests of habitat. Yeah, well, that's actually what I was going to ask you about next on this. What environmental benefit do we derive from fewer roads? Uh, I mean, after all, since it doesn't mean we're necessarily going to have fewer cars, it doesn't mean we'll have fewer cars, right? Just with fewer roads, does it? Right, and I think we're talking about giving people more choices. Right now, in places like D.C. and New York and Boston, it's very hard to build new housing for people to live in an urban environment. Very many people have to live far out in the suburbs, not by choice, but because it's their only affordable option. You know, If we built more housing in urban cores, you're not only giving people a, a chance to, to live there in the place that they want to, that they can walk to work, bike to work, but you're taking cars off the road that don't have to drive in from the suburbs. Uh, Miles Grant, before we got just a minute or two left here. Uh, before I let you go, uh, earlier this year at uh, at Bradblog.com, you also uh, posted a piece from uh, from thegreenmiles.com uh, with the headline "Warmest Winter Records." shattered in the West, but reporters still won't say climate change. Uh, over the past week, in particular, with these uh, horrific storms down in, uh, in Texas and Oklahoma, uh, we're seeing these heat waves in India where over, what are we, 1,200 or so killed. Um, are, are you seeing a similar pattern that you saw earlier this year where, you know, even weather.com was reporting on, uh, you know, the, the extreme weather, but they weren't tying it to climate change as if it was sort of just existing, just one of those crazy things that happen that there's uh, no relation to, to climate change whatsoever, or at least they don't recognize it that way. Have you seen any change in, in recent months on that uh, issue? Unfortunately, so far, we've seen very little, and the first four months of the year have been the hottest on record. So, you know, 2015 is already on pace to knock off 2014 as the the warmest year on record. I think what we're going to see is the conversation shift 
from a, you know local extreme weather events to the national conversation, especially as the 2016 campaign ha- heats up. You know, we've seen in Texas this week just completely unprecedented floods yeah. that no one has ever seen before. And Ted Cruz, the Republican presidential candidate, is actually getting asked about this. Yes. And, you know, his answers are just comically trying to deny responsibility for his big money polluting funders. You know, he said yesterday, I think it's wrong to try to politicize a national disaster. And, you know, it's like, yeah, the last thing we should be doing is trying to use science to figure out if big polluters cause these storms, because then people might really connect the dots and wonder why we're not making these big polluters pay for the damage they're causing to our environment. Well, at this point, it seems like it's gotten so ridiculous that discussing the science equals politicized when you're on the uh, on the Republican side of this equation, just even talking about it. Uh, and like you say, talking about the science is somehow politicizing it. it. There was actually there was a remarkable, and we played it on the air a few a few months ago. I don't think I have that clip here uh, handy, but it was up in Utah where they had these record uh, warm weather over this past winter. Uh, it was great bike weather, as you wrote in uh, in Salt Lake City in the middle of winter in Utah, and. You had the folks on the news, the local news, talking about it and talking about how the records had not been, you know, these were breaking records that had had stood for decades. And even the meteorologist talking to the anchor would not say climate change. They were just saying, boy, yeah, it, it sure has been a long time since it's ever been this hot. We have no record of it ever being this hot. Right. And they were just Weird. killing themselves to not say the words climate change or global warming. Right. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, you know, if our, you know, quote unquote, objective news media was actively trying to deny climate change, how would that look different from what we actually have now? What you see is extreme weather events are reported on on their own as a devastating storm hit or a devastating Mm -hmm. drought is ongoing. But climate change must always be treated as a sidebar, as a niche issue. And it's very rarely integrated into that main story. Are, are, are they denying climate change or on, on these news shows or are they just uh, terrified because it has become politicized, but by guys like Ted Cruz and folks on the right, that if you even talk about it, uh, oh, you're some uh, lefty liberal, quote unquote, scientist. Well, I think what you're seeing is, you know, a little bit of a break within journalism itself that object objectivity is seen as denying the problem exists. No, you are a member of our community. This problem is hurting you and your children as well. We need you to acknowledge the problem and foster a debate about the solutions. I think when journalists don't face up to the problem that we are all facing, I think their audience knows it and feels like they're getting duped. Mm. I think uh, a lot of these media outlets are actually in that business of duping people. But maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm cynical after all of this time. Uh, Miles Grant, really good to talk to you. Uh, I think it's your first time on the broadcast. I hope you will come back for more uh, very interesting uh, stories at bradblog.com and, of course, at your own joint, thegreenmiles.com. Check him out over there and on Twitter at Miles Grant. Miles Grant, Communication Director for the National Wildlife Federation. Thank you, sir, for joining us today and for all you guys do there. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. And don't forget to check out his article, Roads to Nowhere, Do Voters Really Want More? at bradblog.com. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, and we'll come back with much more Bradcast. Got a bunch of stuff I I hope we can get to, including uh, the fight up in Seattle, the paddle in Seattle. 
uh, where they're still trying to uh, <laughs> trying to get that Shell oil rig out of there. We've got a small new development that uh, I'm going to have to figure out how to get around the sensors on that story. Plus, hackers stole data on 100,000 taxpayers from the IRS and maybe even Desi's troll and much more. Straight ahead, I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. See, what we did there is we had a segment about roads in the last segment. And now uh, Seattle wants to tell Shell to hit the road. See how how that works? Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We we talked, uh, boy, I was going to say a few weeks ago, but I think it was only about a week ago with uh, Seattle City Councilman Mike O'Brien. Uh, about his city's fight against Shell Oil, who has pulled in this huge drilling rig that is going to be heading up to the to the Arctic, to the otherwise, until now, pristine Arctic, to the otherwise, until now, frozen Arctic. Now it's wide open for drilling. The Obama administration has given their approval to uh, to Shell to go up there and drill. And so Seattle's brought this great big rig into Elliott Bay, the port of Seattle, did I say Seattle's brought this rig? I mean, Shell. Shell has brought this rig into the port of Seattle. Uh, and Seattle don't want them there. And they're trying to figure out how to get them out. And protesters, uh, kayaktivists, have been uh, surrounding it. A woman actually chained herself to the rig for like two or three days recently. Con- uh, City Council member Mike O'Brien said they're trying to figure out you know, what to do. How to keep Shell from making this their base of... Uh, their base of attack on the uh, on the Arctic, on Arctic drilling, and there's not a lot of other options. I believe the governor of Alaska was recently down there taking uh, checking it out because they may be able to use a more friendly port up in Alaska to get to the Arctic. But Seattle doesn't want them. Nonetheless, there they are. There are these uh, this this huge, enormous oil rig uh, and uh, other ships in the fleet may follow soon. One of the things that Mike O'Brien told us on this show was that uh, they didn't, Shell didn't get the proper permits to even park the rig there. So what they're doing is fining them, fining them $500 a day to keep their rig there as if Shell can't afford that. But he, and he realizes, of course, they can. But they were trying to check out, well, what else can we do to make life difficult for Shell, to make life difficult so they don't want to be here? so that perhaps they won't have an easy route into the Arctic. Well, uh, it looks like King County, which is uh, King County, uh, Washington, the the biggest county in Washington, where Seattle is, uh, King County has now told, I've got to be careful here, has now uh, told Shell to take its stuff elsewhere. Shell's waste management contractor can't dump human waste from the Polar Pioneer rig into a King County manhole, King County says now, according to The Stranger. 
That's the alternate uh, paper up there in Seattle. Will the result be death by a thousand poops? Polar, uh, that's the <laughs> picture of the polar pioneer there. Uh, the uh, waste management company contracted by Shell applied for a permit to dump the Arctic drilling's rig, the Arctic drilling rig's human excrement directly into a King County manhole, and King County has said no. Their reasoning, first off, Shell did not apply for the permit directly, and permits from third parties who aren't the ones generating the waste are usually denied. Secondly, the contractor didn't provide any data about the stuff to King County's industrial waste program. You're supposed to test the stuff, then send the data about the stuff to the regional officials, and that didn't happen, reports the stranger without using the word stuff. So, uh, yeah, w when uh, Mike O'Brien was on this show and talked about making it difficult for Shell, uh, also uh, Mackenzie Funk, the author of Wreck of the Kulik, which is the uh, the last rig that tried to drill up in the Arctic back in, two was it 2012? Yes, 2012. 2012 uh, it ran aground. It was an absolute disaster. Uh, Mackenzie Funk uh, told the stranger that they were going to fight Shell and even if it meant death by a thousand cuts. So in this case, you know, death by a thousand poops. Uh, Funk suggested last week to the strangers, to the stranger that uh, protests and small bureaucratic obstacles to Shell's Arctic drilling plans aren't meaningless, that taken together, small discomforts, like they got to find somewhere to move there to put their stuff, like they got to pay $500 a day, like they got to deal with these annoying little kayaks, like they got to deal with women who chain themselves to the side of this rig, that all of this could create a bigger deterrent to pursuing risky business up in the Arctic. King County's wastewater treatment director, however, says he doesn't see this as a protest against turning Seattle into the launch pad for Arctic drilling. From my perspective, he said we have to apply the rules same for everybody. In this case, clearly did not meet our needs. But King County's Executive Dow Constantine's comments suggest a little bit of anti-Arctic drilling st sentiment. Uh, Dow Constantine said everyone has to follow the rules, even multinational corporations. Over the long run, we need to invigorate the promise of a clean energy future and make King County the regional catalyst for carbon reduction, renewable energy, and a new innovation economy. The stranger adds, the stuff has been flung. So that's uh, what Shell has to deal with up there. Keep up the good work, Seattle. Keep making it difficult for those corporations who uh, can pay hundreds of thousands, uh, I'm sorry, I should say millions, uh, to, to lobby, usually, to lobby officials to get things done. And folks in kayaks don't uh, quite have those millions, but they do have uh, their bodies, they do have their kayaks, and now they have apparently the, uh, the, the, the sewer district in King County uh, on their side. So that's good. That's some good news. Uh, hackers stole data from 100,000 taxpayers from the IRS website. This was announced earlier this week. You may have heard this story. Hackers gained access to old tax, tax returns for more than 100,000 taxpayers. The IRS told reporters that hackers were able to use personally identifiable information obtained elsewhere to access old returns contained on the IRS website. 
Returns for roughly 104,000 taxpayers were accessed by what appeared to be organized crime syndicates, according to IRS Commissioner John Koskinen. He said, we're confident these are not amateurs, that these are actually organized crime syndicates. He emphasized that the hackers had to obtain sensitive personal information, such as Social Security numbers and addresses from elsewhere before trying to gain access to the IRS website. Oh, OK, so we shouldn't worry about it because they they had to obtain uh, information elsewhere in order to do it before they stole the information from one hundred thousand taxpayers. He said Koskin had said uh, this is not a security breach. Our, inform- our basic information is secure. These are criminals who had enough data to try and impersonate the taxpayers. So this is not considered a security breach by the IRS. Now, I know a lot of people out there who have been trained to believe the IRS are terrible people and they're enemies and they're targeting uh, conservative uh, groups in a, on a political basis. Of course, they are not. That is all lie. That is all stuff and nonsense. Spread by right wing liars like uh, Breitbart.com and Fox News and so forth. W- uh, what it, and by the way, and fueled by uh, Barack Obama, who, w- when the uh, right wingers, you know, came out with this information about uh, right wing groups having a difficulty getting their nonprofit status, Barack Obama came out the very next day and said, This is outrageous. This is unacceptable. Of course, it was perfectly acceptable. It was more than acceptable. They weren't just making it hard for right wing groups to get their nonprofit status. They were also making it hard for progressive groups to get their nonprofit status. They should be making it hard for all of them because that nonprofit 501c4 status is not for political groups. It is for social welfare organizations. And that whole status, that 501c4 nonprofit status, is at the heart of this dark money scam that Karl Rove invented after Citizens United in order to uh, allow you know corporations and billionaires and millionaires to give money to these groups in secret. Because if it's a nonprofit group, they don't have to disclose who it was who gave them all this money. And then they take that money and they spend it on campaigning and elections, which is in violation of the law, which the IRS should be stopping from happening. But now they probably won't because uh, they, you know, they and the president fell for this Fox News scam. Anyway, the reason I bring up this story is not really to talk about the IRS. Uh, or that particular scam. The reason I bring up this story is actually uh, just to mention once again, as we have for years on this show, if the IRS cannot even protect its data, cannot even protect its website from hackers. And yes, this is a security breach. What the hell are these people thinking when they are pushing as they continue to push for Internet voting? Sorry to have to bring this up time and time again. Every time there's a hack at the IRS, at the Pentagon, at the CIA, at the FBI, at the White House. Uh, You know, if those companies we we had a story here uh, on this show a few uh, weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now about the, the lottery, a guy, an insider who was able to scam the lottery up in Iowa. He was able to uh, hack the computer, the central computer in person, even though the computer is kept inside a glass room. It's like a movie kept inside a glass room with security cameras running 24 hours a day. I mean, this is like Ocean's Eleven, man. 
And yet he was able to get a thumb drive into that computer, according to pro uh, prosecutors. He was able to hack the uh, video security so that instead of running uh, uh, constantly 24 hours, it only ran for something like one minute per hour or 10 seconds per minute. I can't remember what it was. But that was a $14 million lottery pot that that guy ended up winning until he got caught. So they can't protect the lottery. They can't protect the Pentagon, the FBI, the White House, the CIA, the IRS. And yet they will tell you, and mark my words, because they will tell you this and you will believe them instead of believing me and instead of believing computer security experts around the world, they will tell you that, oh, don't worry, your vote is fine. We've got military-grade encryption on this Internet voting scheme. You don't need to worry. And you'll believe them because a lot of them will be Democrats telling you this. Democrats love the idea of Internet voting, and I don't know why, and it drives me crazy, and I hate to say it, but when it comes to Internet voting, Democrats are science deniers. Yes, you heard me right. They are science deniers. And I've, I've seen this with my own eyes up in uh, Sacramento where you've got these Democrats who have been pushing for uh, Internet voting. You've got computer world-class computer security experts, scientists coming and saying, no, it is absolutely not safe to use the Internet for elections. And they go, OK, thank you very much for that information, uh, uh, Dr. Scientist from Livermore Labs. Now we're going to vote for it and they vote in favor of it. So uh, mark my words. Uh, it will be Democrats who tell you this is perfectly safe and they will help you uh, agree with them because they will say, plus, it'll turn out. Think of all the millions of young voters who'd like to vote from their iPhones. We'll never lose another election. We're Democrats and we'll control everything as long as you let us vote by the Internet. Don't buy it. All right. Uh, we've just got a minute or two left here, uh, Desi Doyen. But I know you had uh, you had an Internet troll you wanted to talk about. I did. I had a you Twitter did. troll. He was very over funny. on your. And by the way, if you'd like to troll Desi Doyen on the Twitters, she is at Green News Report uh, on the Twitters. So uh, th this is just wanted to make things worse for you. Desi. Oh, so okay, what, what, who was your uh, latest uh, um, troll? This, there? this was uh, from Mr. Quinn Dazi, he calls himself. And this was in relation to the story we told last week about how we pay $10 million a minute to subsidize fossil fuels around the world. Yeah. And that's including the external costs and public health and pollution, you know, because $10 million a, a minute, a minute, $10 million a, a, a minute, minute is like five, 5 trillion a year. Yeah. Right. So he responds and he says, Mr. well, Quindazi. Mr. Quindazi, why don't these trolls ever use their real names? I'm just wondering. OK, go ahead. Eliminating subsidies, he says, is a good idea. However, don't forget, fossil fuels are responsible for all human prosperity. And I wrote back and I said, no, human ingenuity is responsible. Fossil fuels are just a tool. And he says, well, yes, a tool. It currently runs everything in the world. So, yeah, sure, we should transition. But vilifying fossil fuels is silly. Yes. And I was like, dude, really? Facts are vilifying. He says, well, you use adjectives like toxic and polluting. You could have used Wait, essential. He, 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 he disputes the fact that fossil fuels are toxic and polluting. 
He just says that I okay. used those and I could have used fossil fuels are essential and life-saving. <laughs> and I was like, dude, we replace tools when we redevelop better alternatives. But hey, fossil fuels kill 7 million people a year from air pollution. And that's that's not just me saying that's that. That's the World Health Organization that actually gathers these statistics. There you go again. Using the word kill when you could have used the word help and save. Life-saving. Yes. So yeah, that's that's what the, the quality of trolls are these days. They're like, I'm so I have to. Buy, you're you're being mean to fossil fuels. <laughs> I'm you're gonna hurt their feelings. I, I think he sounds uh, libertarian-ish. These guys who say. Yes, I'm against these subsidies. We shouldn't be picking winners and losers. However, let's not vilify any company, any corporation. Let's not say they're toxic and polluting, even though they're toxic and polluting. Yeah, 7 million people a year die from air pollution alone caused by fossil fuels. You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> you can troll Desi on the Twitters, of course, at Green News Report. You can troll me there at The Brad Blog, and of course... Uh, on the Facebook as well at the Brad Blog, you can drop me some email if you like. I am Bradcast at bradblog.com. My thanks today, of course, to Desi Doyen, our producer, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and of course to the National Wildlife Federation's Miles Grant of thegreenmiles.com. Is that it? Oh, you can download uh, our show as you like at uh, Stitcher, iTunes, and TuneIn. And, of course, at bradblog.com if you missed any portion of today's show. Until we meet again, I will see you at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.